Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Just Content warning. We advise listeners' discretion for graphic depictions of violence against minorities and existential struggle and some downright filthy language. Episode Say Their Names, a Generation Mix is created for adult audiences only. my darlings. Welcome to our episode of Generation Mix Podcast, and I am your lively host, Jolie. Today is going to be a little bit of a darker, rougher topic that we're going to be discussing, actually, in multiracial history. I found these two cases online that happened over 100 years ago, and both the cases, one called the Mulatto Axe Murders, and the second, the Atlantic Ripper pretty much went on during the same time period between 1911 and 1912, even though there's prior murders and murders that happened after. But the big whole group of both of these victims from these serial killers happened between 1911 and 1912. And the reason why I chose the title that you see say their names is because these victims who were viciously murdered over a hundred years ago, they were targeted solely because of being biracial or in an interracial marriage. And the names I was able to find through different accounts will be named throughout both of these stories. And unfortunately, I didn't get all their names, but I got a big chunk of most of the victims' names that perished from this. And it's something that was visual to me when I was reading all this information, because think about it, if I was born during that time, and living in Louisiana or Texas or Atlanta, you know, 111 years ago, I could have easily been that victim. You could have easily been that victim. So we're going to dive right in. Are y'all ready? Here we go. So the very first murder that happened was in November 1909. And a woman named Edna Opelousas and her three children were killed in Rain, Louisiana. And they were pretty much hacked to death because the reason why it was called the mulatto axe murder is because an axe was used in all these um, killings with these people. And what I found weird was that this one is contentiously debated whether or not it is the first person, but because they found this woman like this in this state, it's a possible link to the murders that happened a few years later because there was a two year break and nothing happened until February, 1911. But check this out. So in February of 1911, 10 miles away from the previous crime scene. Now, Rain, Louisiana, 10 miles away, Crowley, Louisiana. Three members of the Byers family, they were mixed race, were murdered in their beds with an axe, okay? Then two weeks later, okay, 20 miles away. Now this 
this killer seems to be traveling. In Lafayette, Louisiana, you had four members this time of the Andrus family, and I'm going to give you their names. The father was Alexander, also known as Timmy, his wife Mimi, son Joaquin, three, and daughter Agnes, 11 months. They were found murdered in the early morning hours in their beds, the same type of killing. Family, mixed family, they were murdered in their beds. Then, this kept going, y'all. Then in March 22nd, 1911, in Olive Street in Texas, Louis Cassaway, his wife, and three kids were found murdered again in their beds with an axe. And the reason why they found out about Lewis, because now I was able to get a little more information, was that he didn't go to work. And so somebody went to look for him to see what's going on. And this is what the newspapers of that time described it as, okay? Lewis and his six-year-old daughter were found lying on a daybed with their skulls crushed from the blunt side of an axe in the next room. His wife, who was a white woman, okay, interracial couple, was found with her six-month-old son clutched in her arms, his head crushed, and her three-year-old daughter is laying across her legs, her head's crushed. And what's interesting and sad about this particular murder was that the wife, since she was white, she got beaten the worst. And not only was she chopped up, but her head was also beaten with the blunt side of the ax. So in other words, she had both sides coming at her, the hatchet part and the blunt part, and blood was sprayed all over the room. And it was just a big shock to the community because everybody knew this family. Lewis was well-respected, had no enemies, and he had lived there for 10 years with his wife. And here's the thing. Nothing was taken from their home. So they're like, hmm, okay, no robbery. Okay, because his money is still in his pants and nothing else has been disturbed. So now <clears throat> here we go with all these different murders that are happening in a similar, in a similar way and in, in a roughly around the same area. So basically what ended up happening was they the police started looking around to the the nearer do wells as they, they used to be called in Louisiana about who could possibly be tied to something like this. So they focused on this man named Raymond Barnabé. Uh, he was a local petty criminal and a sharecropper from Lafayette, Louisiana. So he lived in the bad back part of town. And the reason why his name got thrown into the mix was because his mistress actually came forward to the police and threw the tea, honey. She didn't even drink it. She threw it at the police and said, uh, she, he's part of those murders and stuff because they had a fight and with her being all, all PO'd and woman scorned, hell hath no fury, like a woman scorned, she took this story to the police. So next thing you know, because of him, in 1911, October 1911, he was arrested and both his kids, who Clementine and Zephyrin, they actually went on trial to testify against, not for their father. And they testified that he had bragged that he had killed the whole damn Andrus family and that they feared for their lives and they wanted him to be in prison. And there weren't too many other details other than that both the kids were pointing the finger at their dad, that he was the murderer. So October 24th, based on that, Daddy Raymond was convicted of the Andrus family murderers, right? But here's the funny and funky thing about this. Raymond's in jail, right? Guess what? More murders happen. So it's like, hmm, he got released briefly, okay? But 
because of the confessions of his kids in that trial, he did end up being convicted, but later on, but because these murders were happening after he was imprisoned, made police think, well, maybe there's somebody else out there. So this is what happened while Raymond was in prison. Okay. So on November 26, 1911 in Lafayette, see Lafayette where they're from, right? Six members of the Norbert Randall family were beaten to death in their beds. Again, same thing, same MO with an ax. Randall, his white wife and their four children, they were all, the kids were all younger than nine years old. They were found by a neighbor and they had their skulls crushed just like that white woman in, in, in the earlier trial, the Castaways. And the police, when they went to go see the scene, they described it as a slaughterhouse. So picture a slaughterhouse, blood, guts, crap just everywhere. It's disgusting. And what's really, really crazy about this too, is that the initial discovery, okay, was made by their oldest child. She's a 10-year-old child and she wasn't with her family that night. She had spent the night at her uncle's house. And so she was basically saved from the fate that befell her, befallen her family. And that's why she probably ran to got the neighbor to get the cops involved. Because a 10-year-old, I mean, imagine coming home 10 years old and your whole family is murdered in front of you. I mean, think of the enormity of that and the, the pain and the trauma you see is something of that. You know, she probably screamed and ran next door to a neighbor saying, help me, help me. My family's dead. Oh, I, I can only, I can only imagine how that must be for that poor child. I don't have her name, unfortunately. So that was really sad. Um, so in the meantime, so after this murder happened, then uh, the sheriff got involved, Louis Lacoste, the Lafayette Parish Sheriff. And he's thinking, okay, Raymond's in jail and these murders are still happening. Let me take a look at these two kids. And the weird thing is that neighbors told him, you know, while he was investigating the kids that they were like filthy, shifty, degenerate. Those were the actual words that the Stevens family, their neighbors said that how they viewed both Zephyrin and Clementine. So what happens? Lacoste goes on that, that little lead and November 27, 1911, Clementine gets arrested. She says she's innocent. She don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. I have no clue. I don't know. So this is what happened. The cops have went into her, the house, the family house, and they investigated her room. And what was damning about that investigation is that they found a woman's suit saturated with blood and covered with human brains in her closet. Okay. The latch of her door was covered in blood and First, what she tried to say was, oh, my dad wiped his hands off on it. But they're like, come on now. You have a suit hanging in the closet and it's still bloody. What? Come on. That makes no sense. And so she ends up getting arrested. On, and then she, uh, sorry, she was arrested. And she had a hearing in court on November 29th, 1911. And when she went to court to that hearing, she ended up confessing on the witness stand that she had killed people. Now. At first, she said 17. So now she's now she's in custody when she did this confession. And then the next thing you know, when she's in custody, the murders still continue. Okay, so this, this sounds like this is something bigger that's going on now because you have the two main suspects now in jail. Zephyrin, by the way, was vindicated because he had a tough alibi when the cops came to visit both of them and found the damning evidence in Clementine's room 
And Zephram was like, I wasn't part of anything. Here's my alibi. Airtight, he was totally thrown out off the suspects list or person of interest, as cops call him now. So, okay, to go back, Clementine and her daddy still rotting in jail. So January 1912, three more families were murdered, quick succession. The first was the Wexford family. And that happened January, uh, they don't give a date actually, January 18th, the second murder, the Warner family was murdered. Wexford, we don't know any information. They were the first of these three serial murders in quick succession. I couldn't find much on that. And with the January 18th, 1912 massacre of the Warner family, I'm giving you their names. So there was uh, Mrs. Marie. There was uh, Pearl, her daughter, who was nine. Gary, her son, who was seven. And Harriet, her daughter, who was five. And I don't know if she, maybe she was unmarried or divorced, but it was just her and her kids that were found axed up and bludgeoned in their beds. So in the third instance, this is with Felix Broussard and his wife, Matilda, and their three kids. And there's no specific date when they were found, but with them and their three kids, Margaret, Louis, and Alberta, or Sissy as they called her, they were killed in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Okay, and with this particular murder, they did some sort of weird, sacrificial, demonic, I don't know, some sort of weird thing, kind of reminiscent of the Manson murders. And I'm going to tell you why. So these these murder victims were found with their hands like splayed apart their, the, the, with pieces of wood. Like, I don't know, they were putting wood between their fingers. And then on the wall, there was a handwritten message. Now, some people said it was blood and other people said it was pencil. And what that crazy like message said was, it was quoting from the King James Bible, Psalms 9, 12. And it said, when he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. And this one, the message was signed the human five. So now we realize there's more than just a couple of people. It's possibly five when you're signing something in blood or pencil, whichever one it is, the human five. So murders still continue because we don't know what's going on. So in February 1912, Hattie Dove, who was mixed race, and her three kids in Beaumont, Texas, same same thing, got axed to death, bludgeoned to death in their beds. March 27th, 1912, Lyle Finucane, Ellen Monroe, who was mixed race, and their four kids in Glidden, Texas, or Glidden, pardon I don't live there. So sometimes, you know, the way we pronounce it may not be the way it actually is pronounced for the natives. And then April 11th, 1912, William Burton, his wife, their two kids and Leon Evers. Now, I don't know who Leon Evers is. Maybe it's a cousin, a visitor or something. And they got murdered in Hempstead, Texas, and they were all mixed race as well. So all this was happening in this swirl of crazy killings that are going on in this particular area. So we're going to jump back to Clementine or Clementine, who was already in jail when all this was going on. So on April 5th, 1912, just, you know, roughly a week before the Burton murders, she changed her initial confession of 17 victims to 35 victims. And when pressed further, like, well, why did you come up with this number? She said, that she belonged to this church called the Church of Sacrifice. 
And it was this like radical sect that was linked to the Christ sanctified holy church. And that within this church of sacrifice, she had um, created, not created, she received voodoo charms and they were called conjure bags by this high priestess, something crazy like that. And the high priestess told her, take this conjure bag because it's meant to protect you while you commit these crimes. And it'll basically make you invisible to any sort of police coming after you. This is like magic. So, and what she said on top of that is that she wasn't the only one. She and her other accomplices would actually draw, draw lots to see who would commit the murders. So like short stick, short of straw, whatever. That's how they kind of rotated the murders between this group. And then another thing that she confessed to was that she said that she had disguised herself as a man to lurk at, unnoticed at night. And that's how she was able to, you know, keep away from the cops because she had a disguise. And when she was asked why she killed the children in addition to the parents, she said that uh, she didn't wish them to be orphans in the world. But again, the motives were never made clear to her, clear to anybody, because that sounds kind of cray cray. Okay. It's like, first she says 17, then 35. Now you're bringing in the voodoo element, which is possible because you know, Louisiana, they do have a strong Creole voodoo history. And then bringing up the church of sacrifice, which was an offshoot of that prior church. I was telling you about Christ sanctified, Holy church. One of the, one of the pastors was actually brought in for questioning. He's like, I've never heard anything like that. that she's talking nonsense. We don't, we don't know anything about this church of sacrifice. I don't know what she's talking about. Right. So what was crazy is that the whole over and extending arc of her whole thing with Clementine is that she kept saying all these different things. Cause like, remember when she was first arrested in November, 1911, she said, Oh, I was innocent and the blood on my clothes is cause my dad wiped his hands off it. Then she, then she confesses on the witness stand a couple of days after when she got arrested saying she killed 17 people. And then a few months later, she changes it again and says it's 35 people. So it sounded like she was making all these grandiose stories because it sounded too, too kooky to be true. But this is 1911, y'all. And, and back then, cops are all about, about let's get the bad person and get him in jail and, and wash our hands of it. And because she confessed, basically, on the witness, you know, on the in hearings and everything else, those confessions were enough to convict her to life in prison. Okay. And she got sent to Angola State Penitentiary in October 1912 based on these confessions. But here's what really gets even weirder. Okay. So about 10 years later, roughly, almost 11 years later, in August 1923, she got released from prison. And I don't know about you, but if you're given life in prison, you'd never get out. But maybe, maybe something weird happened. But here's the explanation as to why they officially, prison officials officially released her. And they said that she received a surgical operation that probably cured her of something. We don't know what the surgical operation is. We don't know what she was cured of, but the crazy thing is, is that she left August of 1923 from Angola state penitentiary. And after that, she was never seen or heard from again. And the other po possible suspects, part of that human five that wrote on the wall, they were never found either. You know, and it's it's really, really creepy. 
And even when earlier, before she was sentenced to life in prison, supposedly other church members came along and, and gave information about this sect, about how they specifically targeted people of mixed race, usually white women that were out either married or in relationships with black men. And their motive, these other church members said, for the killings revolved around this verse from the New Testament, um, Matthew 3.10, and now also the ax is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So think about that. Think about what I just said. So every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit. So basically what you're saying is because biracial couples and their kids weren't good fruit, they deserve to be killed because they were bad blood. They were mongrels. They were half breeds, whatever the, the prevailing thought was of that day. But in the end, never found again. And some people actually um, suspect that maybe there really was a voodoo thing at work because maybe one of those conjure bags really did work because we never heard from her or saw, saw her again, you know? And I think the reason why police didn't do as deep investigation as they can do now. Well, number one, we have to look at how in 1911, it's nothing like 111 years later. You didn't have the DNA, the forensics and all the extra stuff that we have now like they did back then. And so I think what ended up happening was they just found the most likely suspects and got a confession. And that was good enough for them, even though the murders continued, even though the rest of the murderer murderers weren't found. And the way it was back then, remember, this was 1911, and this wasn't that far from, from after the end of the Civil War when Blacks were freed. So this was a time of, you know, Jim Crow and segregations and all that, and where Black folks and mixed race folks were treated as lower class citizens. And the way I see this whole thing, this whole case with all these murders still technically unsolved because Clementine wasn't that consistent in all her different confessions and how... We don't know who these other people are. Basically how I see it, second-class citizen, you get second-class treatment in the justice system. Okay, my darlings, I'm going to take a break. I will come back with the next crazy story about the Atlanta Ripper. This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. Hello, my darlings. We are now back to part two of this 
very dark episode. So now we're going to talk about the Atlanta Ripper murders. So these murders took place primarily between 1911 and 1912. And what was interesting about the researching of this is how the newspapers in the day, remember, this was yellow journalism at its peak because that's when it started with the whole tabloidism that we see today with the Inquirer, Star, People, Magazine, all that other stuff, the gossipy stuff. And what it was, was not only with the whole yellow journalism aspect of it, they focused on one prevailing link between all the victims was that they were all attractive, well-dressed mulattoes in their 20s. And it wasn't any dark-skinned African-American women who ended up being victims of the Atlanta Ripper. So what's crazy about this one, just like the prior one with the mulatto axe murders, is that there, it wasn't really, it was, it was really messed up because during the whole process, when these murders were happening, six different men were arrested and it was just like a free for all. They were really trying to scrabble for stuff. And here's, here's how this all began, right? So just like in the mulatto axe murderers case, first crime, this one is hotly contented as well, uh, is in 1911, January, 1911, 35 year old Rosa Trice was found murdered, okay? And she was all mutilated and chopped up and all that stuff. And basically there was silence. And so the newspapers thought this was kind of interesting seeing a woman like this in this condition. So the Atlanta Constitution um, in May found that another woman was murdered and this was Belle Walker. And Bell Walker apparently was kind of like a high society or in, in, I guess, the mixed race black community. Because when Bell Walker, this, this particular victim was found, was when the Atlanta Constitution ran its first blurb about it. It's two, two paragraphs, real brief. It was on page seven of this paper. And it basically read, Negro woman killed, no clue to slayer, was found with her throat cut near her home. And how Belle Walker, this victim was found, was her sister found her on Sunday morning because Walker didn't return from her job the prior night working as a cook at a home on Cooper Street. And what it what it looks like is I'm wondering, was she found in her home or was she ha- found outside? There weren't no details about that, all that her sister just found her on a Sunday morning. So then here come the murders back to back. June 15th, 1911. Addie Watts was murdered. Newspapers looked at that and said, well, maybe the murders of the quote unquote negresses are probably the work of a solitary killer. Again, she was found all throat cut, head almost chopped off, all that. Then 10 days later, Lizzie Watts was the next victim. And now by this time in Atlanta, it was moved to the front page because now you're talking about, now this is basically the one, two, three, this is the fourth victim now. And what the newspaper men saw was a pattern. And the pattern was that it was every Saturday that these women were getting killed. And what it looked like while seeing the murder scenes is how this person or persons was killing was that the woman gets choked unconscious. And then once she's unconscious, this killer would slice her throat from ear to ear. And then he'd start mutilating other parts of her body too. But the biggest thing was that their throats were like slit. Like these women were nearly decapitated. 
And then it kept going. Okay. So next victim, Emma Lou Sharp. Now this one is really crazy. When I came across this, this happened July 1st. So Emma Lou Sharp, she was home in her on Hanover street and she was waiting for her mom, Lena Sharp to come home. Now it was a Saturday night. Remember how the, the newspapers were saying every Saturday night, her mama didn't come home. So now she was worried because now this, this person is running around killing people on Saturdays and her own mother is not home and it's a Saturday night. And what happened was her mother had went to go get some groceries and she never returned. So Emma Lou was like, okay, let me go out and find my mom and see what's going on. So she went to where the mom was supposed to go to the market to get the groceries. Lena never showed up there. So she's like, oh my God, where is he? So she started walking back home, probably thinking in her mind, where is my mother? What's going on? And as she was walking home, she was approached by this stranger and she described the stranger as tall, black, broad shouldered, and wearing a broad brimmed black hat. And this man came up to her and he said, oh, how are you this evening? And she's like, oh, I'm fine. And she kind of tried to get away from him really fast because this is nighttime, this big black person coming up to you and people are getting killed in the area. So she immediately got nervous. And, but he jumped in her path as she was trying to walk away. He said, oh, don't be afraid. I never hurt girls like you. And guess what he does? He stabs her in the freaking back. He literally stabbed her. Crazy enough, she runs away screaming for help. And she basically, fortunately enough, was she lived through her, her injuries. And this just blew my mind because she ended up finding out in the end that Lena did end up getting mutilated by this mysterious person. Now, we don't know if it was that guy she came across because this guy stabbed her in the back when the other prior murders were all noted for being choked unconscious. So it could have been a copycat. It could have been the guy. Who knows? But she was one of the ones who actually survived her injuries. And so next, next murder, July 8th. In the same year, 22-year-old Mary Yeldell, she had left the home of her um, boss, Seltzer, who lived on 4th Street, and she worked as a cook for this guy. So she leaves, and as she walks by an alleyway, she hears this whistle. And she looked and said, okay, where's this whistling coming from? And she suddenly sees this tall man, black and well-built, and moving with a quote-unquote cat-like tread. So she already was paranoid after hearing all these murders. So she ran back to her boss's house and told him, oh my God, there's this man out here and he's trying to kill me and stuff. And what her boss did, Mr. Selsa, was he took her in, grabbed his revolver, ran back to that alley where Mary saw that dude and the man was still there. And then when Selsa came in and said, raise your hands, man, you know, pointing that gun at him, the man ran away. And so Seltzer went back and he went to call the police, but they couldn't find anything. Again, it's dark. It's a black man. You can't get good, you know, a good identification of who it is. So again, nothing. This is all getting more and more mysterious. And then July 11th, that was just three days later. Okay. After that attempted murder of Mary Yadell, possible attempted murder, there was a group of men who were working on a sewer uh, near the intersection of Atlanta Avenue and Martin Street, and they saw this huge pool of blood. And they're like, oh my God, where is this coming from? So they followed this trail 
And it led to the small gully that was about 30 feet away. And that's where the body of Sadie Holly, who worked at a local laundry, was found. And her throat had been cut so savagely, she had almost been decapitated. So this person went to town on her. It was crazy. So now everybody's in an uproar, you know, like, come on, like, what's going on? Find somebody. And everybody's chasing around trying to find clues, who the killer is and everything. So because of all this uproar, about a few days later, after July 11th, after finding Sadie Holly, the mayor, Cortland Wynn, he basically said that he asked the police chief and the chairman of the police commission saying, what's going on? Can you give me some info, intel? And what he said publicly was, is quoted as saying, why the police are unable to cope with the situation is more than I can understand. So now the cops are in on it. They're getting this external pressure and all that. And what they did was within 24 hours, because of this increasing pressure, they arrested a man by the name of Henry Huff. And he was a 27-year-old laborer. And folks said that Huff had been seen with Holly the night she was killed. And he was wearing bloody clothes and had scratches on his arms when he was arrested. But he was only held on suspicion, a.k.a. person of interest. Um, and basically what it was, was that they didn't really get much out of him. So the cops were getting really upset and, and all that. And they were just getting more and more flustered. And what ended up happening was they just started arresting people like all over the place. Because then the next person to try and wrap all these killings up, another suspect, Tom Henderson, <clears throat> was arrested at a salon on Decatur Street. And some witness there claimed to see Henderson with Holly in a drugstore, not far from the murder scene on the night she was killed. And so what they ended up doing was, okay, we got these two people. Let's bring one of these guys to Emma Lou Sharp. Remember her, the one who got stabbed in the back and who was surviving her industry, uh, in, uh, surviving her injuries. Um, basically <clears throat> they went to her and they brought Todd Henderson in to see if she can identify him. And when she saw him, she shrunk back. And so she turned to the reporter and said that that's the man, if that's that, that's the man, if that's not right, I'm, I'm badly mistaken. And then basically she was just, you know, she was ill, she was sick and, you know, she thought it was, it felt like it was to her, you know, but here's the problem with that because she couldn't give a firm, you know, statement in terms of this is the exact person who attempted to murder me because again, features and identification is kind of hard to do at night. And so what ended up happening <clears throat> was that Henderson and Huff, the cases were circumstantial and you know how it is in all court systems. You have to, you know, give without a, a reasonable doubt to convict someone. So this is circumstantial evidence because you had two different people naming two different men that were seen with her on the day of the murder. So that kind of threw a monkey wrench into the whole situation. So the governor Hulk Smith decided, oh boy, this is getting crazy. Let me offer a reward, a $250 reward for the Ripper's capture. And this was in the early 1900s. So that was pretty substantial to find, you know, who was the person who was committing these crimes. So then more political pressure and basically cops were running around just arresting everybody based on hearsay. I think I saw this person with the victim, this, that, and the other. And so what ended up happening was that on August 9th, the grand jury just ended up indicting two men. Remember, Henry Huff was one of them. I don't know what happened to Todd. He virtually disappeared as a suspect. And a new suspect named John Daniel. So now Huff was indicted in the Holly murder, 
But we don't know anything about Daniel, only to say that he was also part of the Ripper case. But there's nothing to be found about what he was arrested on, what murder. All we know is this guy was taken in, booked on suspicion. His name was John Daniel. So murders still continue. August 31st, six weeks, six weeks of silence. Then we find Mary Ann Duncan. And she was found dead in an area called Blantown, which is a little west of Atlanta. And she was lying between railroad tracks. And it looked just the same like all the other Ripper murders. And she was found without her shoes. Apparently, the Ripper also would take their shoes. And then her throat was cut ear to ear. And then right after that, Zila Favors was murdered. She was found on her porch with a ruptured skull and numerous lacerations. Then October 18th, 1911, Ellen Maddox was bludgeoned by, by an object. And she almost survived her injuries because she was rushed to the hospital. But what was really sad was her last words in the hospital right before she succumbed to her injuries was, he ran up behind me and hit me and then that was it. She died. That was, that was all the testimony she was able to give. And then Minnie Wise, she was the next victim. And the newspapers described her as a quote unquote comely mulatto girl. She was found in an alleyway on November 10th. Her throat had been cut, shoes were removed, and her index finger on her right hand was severed at the middle joint. That's just weird. What in the world? I mean, no. So now this became nationwide because all these back-to-back murders and all these women getting their throats cut and everything, and that's where the Atlanta Ripper became a nationwide type of scandal, and it got nationwide attention. And Mayor Wynn was getting really embarrassed because detectives from other cities were asking, do you want us to help? I mean, and he just felt like, oh, my God, they must all think I'm incompetent or something. So then what he said is he he wrote this letter and it said Atlanta is known throughout the country as one of the most law abiding cities of its side in the United States. And its police and detective departments are second to none. It is true that in some instances, criminals escape arrest for a time. But even escapes of this kind occur in all cities. And then he's he's defending himself and all that. And then a week after he sent that letter, making that statement, the next victim popped up, Mary Putnam. This one reminded me of Mary Kelly, you know, the Ripper's last victim, because Mary Putnam, she was found with her heart cut out. Her head was almost cut off and her body was disemboweled. Okay. And that's like the worst one, the grisliest murder out of all these murders yet. Right. And So the police were still hunting. Newspapers were getting in on the investigative game. And so on November 23rd, the Constitution ran an interview with an unnamed detective. And what the detective said was that he was just mad at all the black people because they weren't getting any, you know, good, solid leads. And he was quoted as saying, we won't get to the bottom of this thing until we get some help from the Negroes. These murders are being committed among the lower class of Negroes, ignorant, brutal beasts that know nothing else. Their acquaintances are afraid to talk, but if there was a little money slipped them, we could find out invaluable clues, and I wager we would land the murderers, but we haven't gotten the the expenses. Oh boy, yeah, racism, racism, blatant racism, and printing this in American papers, man. So then the churches got involved too. They're like, you know, the newspapers with the media, the police, the mayor, so the churches got involved. 
And the churches were like, I don't want any of you young ladies going out at night alone. And you, I want you to stay safe. We're going to find these killers. And at Big Bethel Church, there was a basket placed around for the reward. And $1,200 was raised to add the reward. So now we're talking about $1,450 now, because that's in addition to the $250 the governor gave. So basically, they're really on a mission. They're like, come on, we need to find this guy. Now, Henry Huff, remember Henry Huff earlier who got indicted? He was found not guilty by a Fulton County jury. And so basically, the Georgian, which is another newspaper, added that this means that the police department and the county authorities are as far as ever from a solution to the Jack the Ripper murders. So now Henry, Henry's out. Then a month later, Jack the Ripper turns up again, as they like calling him, even though he should be called Atlanta Ripper. So the 19-year-old Octoroon girl, and she was found in a clump of bushes at the end of Prior Street. Now she'd only been stabbed in the throat, but still that's grisly, grisly enough as it is. And her name was Pearl Williams. And then basically what was the next thing was that, so we're still trying to find who, who's doing this and all that. And so everything kind of went cold for a second. And then April, 1912, there was a man named Charlie Owens who was sentenced to life in prison for one of the Ripper murders and didn't again, like John Daniel earlier, didn't say which murder, which one he was convicted for any of that. Right. And so then Henry Brown on August 10th, 1912, who was also known as Lawton Brown was arrested for killing Eva Florence and she was murdered the previous November and how he got arrested was that Brown's wife went to police and said that he would come home on successive Saturdays, the same Saturdays that these killings were taking place with bloody clothes and he would sit before the fire to dry them out. And so they went to question Brown and he actually did reveal intimate details of the crime. And so detectives thought, oh my God, we finally found this person. Thank goodness. So Brown goes to trial, right? But then this young black man, John Rutherford, we don't know if he was just a regular citizen or whatever. He testified that the police had put Brown through what they called the third degree, what we would call now is like a form of torture. You know how when, when certain um, agencies do torture to get confessions out of people and, and all that other stuff, in which they kind of do today in some places. And in this particular instance, what they did to Brown was they chained his arms to a chair and then kept striking him in the head until he confessed. And so what Brown said was because of this beating he received during interrogation and then his confession was that he said he suffered hallucinations and that the jury, you know, they'll just say, they'll just believe whatever because they want to close this case really quick. And he's like, but I think I did it, but I'm not sure. But because they beat the hell out of me in my head, I, I don't know. And so based on this cloudy stuff, they acquitted him on October 18th, okay? 1912, right? Here we go. Another one, March 1913. Laura Smith was found with her throat cut. Like the other victims, she was young, mixed race, and she worked as a servant. And the last known final victim was Mary Cates, who died on April 9th, 1913. 
And what's really sad about this is with all these arrests and everything and, and sub, subsequential, you know, being acquitted or a couple of them that ended up in jail. The thing is, none of these cases were really truly solved and no real suspect was ever published. So until this day, these murders remained unsolved. And you have to realize when I came across these two stories too, you know, back then information isn't as widespread and as, as detailed as it is now. So it reflects it. You know, you can only get snippets of information over a hundred years ago to create a story behind it. But, but just like the mulatto ax murders, there was no real case of closure. So we don't really know who it was, why they did it or anything. And how I got all this information. I mean, I had to run everywhere to find about this one. I went to Troy Taylor's American hauntings and Blogspot. I went to Wikipedia, crimecapsule.com, ranker.com. And then there's a couple of books about this too, but I didn't read, but they're actually, if you're interested in kind of pursuing more, um, there's one called The Atlanta Ripper, The Unsolved Case of the Gate City's Most Infamous Murders by Jeffrey Wells. And there's also another book, Murder and Mystery in Atlanta by Corinna Underwood. So that basically summarizes how the Atlanta Ripper murders came about. And it, it was really difficult for me to do the, the, these two, but it had to be done because I think every so often these murders keep popping up either on podcasts or websites or whatever, just to remind people that, you know, this happened and this has never been solved and it probably will never be solved. So I just want to, um, Thank you guys for joining me today to learning about a piece of uncomfortable and painful history of our community. And for right now, for all these victims, I want to have a moment of silence to remember them and their affected families. Please like, rate, subscribe, comment, and follow. Download all that good stuff, Generation Mix Podcast on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and Spreaker. My Instagram, if you want to follow, Generation Mix Podcast, TikTok and Twitter at Gen Mix Podcast. Sign up for my newsletter at justjmark.com. Stuff is coming, y'all. And my darling listeners, this wraps up another episode of Generation Mixed, bringing stories of what it means to be multiracial in America, one person at a time from the studio to the streets. See y'all next week. Adieu. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.